Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Chodesh Tov, Chodesh Tov, wishing everyone a wonderful month of Sivan and uh, the month of Shavuot. And so the, the nigun I want to sing with you all this morning is called the nigun of the birds. And I want to sing nigun of the birds is because with Shavuot, in a few days, we think of revelation happening at Mount Sinai. But I want to suggest also that we experience revelation all day, all day through nature and through the life around us. So this is called nigun of the birds. I hope you'll join me as you pick it up. <clears throat> Wishing everyone a Chodesh Tov, a month of revelation, a month of revelation. And today we're going to continue the revelation that occurs through acts of kindness. That chesed has the ability not only to warm us and comfort us, but also to expand us to a sense of possibility. And that's what the revelatory experience is, an expansion towards the deepest sense of possibility in our lives when we feel cared for. And so number seven of 40 today is going to be De'agal Yatomim, caring for vulnerable children. Before we launch into the content, I want to offer you a poll question to see how you are experiencing or thinking about the category of vulnerable children. How have I engaged with vulnerable children? Option one, I have adopted or fostered a child. I would add in there, um, you know, that's fine. I've adopted or fostered a child. Option two, I worked in a field as a teacher, social worker, healthcare provider, or the like with vulnerable children. So maybe they didn't come into your home, but you in some way supported them professionally. Option three, I myself was adopted or fostered. Option four, I have no personal or professional relationship to vulnerable children. Okay, give y'all give y'all a second here. Okay, Alex, let's see our results. Okay, 11% here have adopted or fostered a child. 56% have worked in a field supporting such children. No one here um, says they were adopted or fostered. And 33% said they've had no personal relationship. Okay, so we already did a session on caring for children in general. And this session is going to be on the unique category of vulnerable children. Now, I want to take a moment just to pause and mourn the loss of horrific loss of life last week in Texas elementary school. Um, and in a way, I feel like every child in America is vulnerable um, when we cannot um, curb this, uh, this, this horrific violence of uh, gun violence. So I keep that in mind that there's a category of, it's not a binary, there's non-vulnerable children and then vulnerable children on the other end of the binary. There's a whole spectrum here, um, not only of degrees of abuse, degrees of neglect, but uh, degrees of risk as well. So here we go. If you're new to our program, we're going to um, have about 20 minutes of presentation, followed by uh, questions and conversation around this issue and beyond. So the Torah charges us to take care of the yatom. The yatom is not only an orphan who has lost both of their parents as, as a child. A yatom may also be a child who's lost one parent. A yatom may also be a child who has living parents, but who must live outside of their care due to abuse or neglect or hardship. I would also call a refugee child a yatom, one who has to flee 
their parental care, not because their parents abused or neglected them, but because they simply can't be with them for any reason. So in short, the yatom is the child that is particularly vulnerable because they are lacking full parental support. The number of foster children in America continues to rise as we fail to contain child abuse and child neglect. And with each passing year, even with countless potential parents ready to open their homes to vulnerable children, the process to foster or adopt remains incredibly difficult. Beyond, beyond our American borders around the world, there are millions of children whose only wish is to be loved, to have a stable family structure, and to escape the fleeting conditions of a life in the foster care system or raised in institutions. Along with everything else happening in the world today, the fact that countless children don't have a permanent loving family or a safe home to call their own is one of the disgraceful truths of modern times. Where there is great suffering, the Jewish people must emerge to bring healing. The plight of foster children is not an abstract concept for me. And I don't write about this topic from a distance. For many years, uh, as some of you know, my wife and I have gone through the tribulations to provide a loving environment to foster children to, to the best of our ability. We've gone through the counseling, the certification, the frantic late night calls from agencies looking to place a child at a moment's notice and the pain of seeing the foster child who we've loved and cared for taken away in a blink of an eye. We always support the case plan of reunification with family, even when it feels misguided. We have learned to give up control. During times of great of greatest challenge, I turn to the wisdom of Torah, which speaks so powerfully about the obligations that we all have to vulnerable populations. A community needs to take responsibility for those who don't have living parents or who don't have parents equipped at, at the moment to care for them. Yet this biblical precept seems to be overlooked in the present day, where the barriers for adoption are so high and the prospect to extend a loving home to a child in need can be so difficult, demanding and arduous, that too many feel that they are not up to the task. But if we know the Torah is constantly talking about the yatom, why isn't our Jewish community doing more to prioritize the ability to protect these children? The need for our collective participate, participation is urgent. According to statistics from Administration for Children and Families, a part of, of the Department of Health and Human Services, it was estimated that CPS units across the nation received 3.6 million referrals, which in, involved approximately 6.6 .6 million children. Of these children, only about 150,000 of them will be placed in foster homes, and only 50,000 will end up being adopted. Nearly a quarter of them will develop long-term post-traumatic stress disorder. A fifth will be homeless by adulthood. 71% of the young women will be pregnant before 21, and over half will be unemployed by age 24. So, so much needless suffering that we're looking at here, so much wasted potential, and the stomach-dropping stomach bumps of an unsteady track. The consequences of being raised in a broken home are real for so many children too many, and the effects not only stunt the development of those innocent souls, they affect the economic and social bonds that bring our nation together. If you don't grow up in a home with a loving family, then your chances at success in life are so much dimmer, the chances of social mobility. We want to help give children their best start in life to shoot for the stars. I believe we owe the emotional discomfort bringing these unfamiliar children into our care where possible while keeping in touch with biological family, of course. As hard as that is, the alternative of children having no loving home in the interim is never a good option. Rather, we take the care of vulnerable children, those we gave birth to and those who we've brought in to foster or adopt, because it's the greatest moral obligation and spiritual privilege we are charged to fulfill, to ensure that every child is some way loved, ideally from a biological family. Although there are many challenges, we know it's an important mitzvah to participate. Here's what it says in the Talmud of Ketubot. The rabbis taught that one who rescues and raises a vulnerable child in one's home fulfills a tremendous mitzvah, since there's a community responsibility to support impoverished vulnerable children. Um, it also says in Ketubot, in a different page, we must allocate our communal funds to support such vulnerable children. 
The Rambam, Maimonides, explains how we must show the highest sensitivity towards vulnerable children. Whoever irritates them, provokes them to anger, pains them, tyrannizes over them, or causes them loss of money is guilty of this specific transgression. The great prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah, teaches us to defend the cause of the vulnerable children. By the way, I keep translating this, as you see, as vulnerable children, because the word yetom is traditionally translated as orphan. But this category is so far beyond an orphan. That's why I keep using that, that particular category. If we had infinite time, resources, and energy, everyone would foster and adopt children needing homes. But we don't have that. And we always know that taking on one more demanding, all-embracing mitzvah means something else is likely to lose out. Consider this story of the Skolliner Rebbe, who taught that one should even show more care to a vulnerable child than their own children. This is kind of a difficult moral triage question. Here's what the Skolliner Rebbe wrote. The Rebbe stayed in Europe after World War II, defying the Soviets to look after refugees and keep vulnerable children in his home. On one cold night, he found a vulnerable child on his floor crying without a blanket. He went and took the blanket off one of his own of his own child and gave it to the vulnerable child. His son understood, but nonetheless, the Skolner Rebbe said, my dear son, please understand, you have a father. You can at least warm yourself with that. That child has no one in the world. Let him at least have this blanket. So this story touches at home for me because... Um, I would say the hardest part of fostering for myself was when the judge ruled the child should go back to a biological parent um, when I felt that parent was not ready. Um, it was almost always a single mother. And of course, I wanted that single mother to be equipped to have her child. I 100% support that. And I wanted her to have the time to get off the, um, certain drugs or to be in a place where she wasn't going to use you know, physical violence um, as a form of abuse. Um, or be equipped with a job or a support network to have the success that she needed. We would raise her child as long as she needed to have that success. But when the judge would rule it prematurely, um, that was very painful to see that child that came to us deeply malnourished um, and now was thriving at, to go back into that setting. And sadly enough, oftentimes we got a call a year later that that child was back in the system because of, um, in fact, that that parent was not ready. Um, to have them back. That was the hardest thing. But the second hardest thing, building off the Skolliner Rebbe, was when my biological children were crying in the hallway for me to put them to bed, and I could not do it because I was putting a foster child to bed. And I would choose that foster child to be put to bed because they needed extra time. They were scared of the dark because of how they experienced the dark and trauma. Um, and they needed more time for various reasons. But I heard my child, my biological child, outside crying for me. And I, I was making that choice. So I, I read this Skolner Rebbe story. I'm like, oh, this is horrific. Like, take the blanket off your child to pass it on. You know, I, I first I found it inspiring. Then I found it kind of troubling. And then I found it just very real for me of like, we are very limited in our money, our time, our energy of what we can do to create change in the world. And we make choices. And when we make a choice, we also have a loss. And so, um, and so th this story very much resonated for me. So indeed, a vulnerable child will often have much greater needs than one's own less vulnerable um, or uh, child, biological child. And as I share from personal experience, I know there are times when one would need to be prepared to choose the needs of the non-biological child over one's biological child. We might need to do it or freight, um, um, or as the Skolner Rebbe has, uh, and yet, um, such a dilemma is very real, even, even if we feel we must do this. The Yatom is not only vulnerable, they are potentially heroic. Consider some of the great leaders in our history who grew up outside of the home of their biological families. Um, but by the way, if you happen to be a Miami Heat fan, um, our friend over here in our office, Isaac, was sharing that one of the best players on the Heat, maybe you know who I'm talking about, um, was... Um, homeless by age 13, and then uh, and then adopted, and part and is like a great moral model model in the NBA. He doesn't argue with the refs. He does a whole lot of charitable work, um, and so building off this idea that you're not only vulnerable, you're also heroic. I like to reframe the immigrant narrative that way as well. We're obligated to support the immigrant not only because they're vulnerable, but also because they're a heroic journeyer. 
So let's talk about our tradition and the, these heroes. Um, here, of course, is Exodus chapter 2. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, to, to her son. She named him Moshe. Moshe, from Egyptian for born of or drawn, here associated with Masha, drawn out, explaining, I drew him out of the water. So indeed, his very name is born out of his adoption experience or his foster experience, how he is pulled from the river. I often think about that river also as that place of what DCS is doing. There is a biological family who has the right to their child. And then there's this kind of journey down the waters to that next stage. Um, the greatest prophet in Jewish tradition, Moshe, was adopted. From this story, the rabbis teach that one who raises a child is considered to have given birth to them in the sense that if, if they become a permanent, a, permanent, um, a permanent home for them. Here's what it says in the Midrash Lekach Tov. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter to be her son, to teach you that one who raises his friend's son, it is as if they birthed the child. And so it is writing regarding Naomi. Why is Naomi relevant right now, anyone? Yeah? You mean me? Yeah. Okay, uh, the mother-in-law of Ruth. Beautiful. And and why are we thinking about her this week? Anyone remember? Shavuos. Shavuos, yeah. yeah. Good, thank you. Yeah, so good. Naomi, the mother-in-law of Ruth. Uh, a lot of our conversion um, um, ethics uh, emerge from here. We see a different biblical ethos. And on the holiday of Shavuot, this coming weekend, we read the book of Ruth. Um, so over here it says, the, the women neighbors gave him a name saying, a son is born to Naomi. We learned that from Ruth. And that is what is also said in Chronicles. And it is, how do you say this in English? Hey, Yehudia, wife bore him. Hey, Yehudia, that's Batia, the daughter of Pharaoh who converted and became Jewish. She bore just like a son is born to Naomi. And so we learn here that in a, in a foster case, of course, this is much more sensitive, but in an adoption case, one's adoptive parent is to be viewed as their parent. Then consider one of the greatest heroes in the Jewish tradition, Esther. He, uh, what's Esther's story here? He was foster father to Esther. This is kind of a funny picture. I don't know if they looked at all like that. Uh, certainly they weren't white like that. <laughs> You know, the art that makes them look white. Um, but, you know, they were, they were um, you know, uh, Persian. So, um, so it, says, it says here in Esther, he was foster father to Hadassah. That is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. The maiden was shapely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. Consider further how future redemption will have emerged from a foster mother. Going back to this other story. Naomi took the child and held it to her bosom. She became its foster mother. And the women neighbors gave him a name saying, a son is born of Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Yishai, the father of David. So what do we know? Mashiach ben David. Um, there's a very interesting line of thought. If you were at Rabbi Rosen's class last week, we talked about this a little bit. He gave a fascinating answer about why the Messiah will emerge from the, 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 the house of David. And yet we see the house of David emerges from um, not only con um, converts, but also this adoption story. So this is a fascinating idea of how we think about redemption. The Malbim teaches here on Ruth, the Malbim says, Naomi took the child, According, she was his foster parent, uh, which the Hebrew is omen or omenet. And she carried him as a foster mother, her son. And the neighbors said that a son is born to Naomi, for that's the truth. He is her son through uh, uh, Leverite marriage, and that's the name he was called, son of Naomi. And his own name was, was Oved, which means a worker or a worshiper, as he is destined to worship Hashem. And he's the father of Yishai, from whom the king kingdom of David will come forth. So beyond the Torah, consider also how some of our greatest sages in the Talmud were foster children. Here's what it says in the Talmud of, Kid of Kiddushin. Um, of Kiddushin. So, uh, sorry for that error in the footnote. It says Kiddush, but it's Kiddushin. When Rav Yosef heard his mother's footsteps, he would say, I will stand before the arriving Shekhinah. Rav Yochanan said, Fortunate is one who never saw his father and mother, 
as it is so difficult to honor them properly, uh, appropriately. The Gemara relates that Rav Yochanan himself never saw his parents. When his mother was pregnant with him, his father died. And when she gave birth to him, his mother died. And the same is true of Abaye. The, the Gemara asks, is that so that Abaye never saw his mother? But, but didn't. Didn't Abaye say on many occasions, my mother told me? The Gemara answers that mother was actually his foster mother, not his birth mother. So we see this is not only true in the Tanakh, our greatest leaders, as we see in the book of Ruth, we see in uh, Moshe, we see in Esther, also in the Talmud, some of our greatest sages as well. These are very sensitive matters, and we can all be as sensitive as possible in caring not only for these children, but also for the family supporting them. Perhaps the hardest part of fostering is letting go of the child, as I shared earlier, once the child is ready to transition out of the home. 30 years in the future, I can imagine myself walking down a busy street. All my children are now grown, perhaps with children of their own, and my wife and I are alone at home. In this vision, I see myself on a business trip halfway across the country. As I make my way out of the hotel toward my destination, I lock eyes with a stranger, but something about him looks so familiar. We exchange glances, but proceed with our busy lives. Yet I know I've seen those eyes before. Being a foster parent means journeying on a challenging path. Besides all the normal tribulations of taking care of a child are the added burdens that each foster child carries with them, given that most foster children are emerging from a traumatic experiences of neglect and or abuse during their early lives. It's a delicate task to simply offer unconditional love and support. And also, we know the challenges of balancing the sensitivities around different religions, different race, the gender dimensions, the LGBTQ issues. There's many sensitivities that go into the complexity of bringing a child, bringing a child into one's home. One of the things we do when we work with foster parents um, is look at some of those sensitivities. Um, and many of our communities are not are necessarily sensitized towards some of those racial dimensions. If there's a synagogue, which is mostly white, um, some people might not know it's inappropriate to ask, oh, where's that child from? What's their background? Or um, they might, uh, um, might want to touch a child's hair or comment on their hair. All types of things that, um, that, um, that communities that lack diversity uh, need to be sensitized towards. But besides these known challenges lie the challenges of the unknown, the, the unenviable task of learning how to detach after you've worked so hard to attach. If you feel called to provide care to a foster child, you treat that child like he or she is your biological child. You pour out your love, your patience, your care, whoever they are. But then at a moment's notice, this child, this defenseless being, can be compelled by outside institutional forces to leave hopefully to reunite with biological family member. This is the goal, but also in some ways a foster parent's agony. We feel bonded and connected with a child whom we may hope to love forever. And in the passing of a moment, the child is gone from our home. Of course, the intended goal of fostering is usually reuniting biological family members with their children. Foster parents should of course be rooting for the success of the biological parents and hoping that they can fulfill the court's requirements to have their child return home. Nevertheless, there's a further level of pain if you feel the court's decision to return the child to its family was a premature decision or worse. In my family's experience, one of our foster children moved into a drug, a drug rehab facility. As wonderful as it was that the mother had gotten clean, it was hard to imagine the child living in that institution. I still grasp for answers, though they never seem to appear. Um, of course, you don't have access to, to, uh, to those children. Um, one child emerged from a Native American reservation. There's, there's a, a, a very tragic uh, 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 racist history around why many Native American children ended up in the system in the first place. Um, that's beyond the scope of our current conversation. Um, um, and yet uh, we know at some of our local reservations, Hopi and Navajo and the like, that there's, uh, there, is, there, is, uh, there are major problems with alcoholism um, that have emerged um, and why some of those children end up in the system. So in my own experiences, I have not, which I've not mastered at all the full spiritual art of learning to attach and detach from children um, 
that I've been fortunate to foster, I've certainly grown a little bit. Because at the end of the day, you need to treat a foster child the same as a biological child in every way, or virtually every way. And yet, if you're going to fully bond, um, it is very difficult to then detach. The wisdom from Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist Zen master and peace activist who recently passed away just this last year, who Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. of Blessed Memory nominated him for a Nobel Peace Prize during the Vietnam War. He has been helpful in helping to understand this. Looking at a pile of photographs of vulnerable children, he meditates until I no longer see an eye who translates the sheets to help each child. I no longer see a child who received love and help. The child and I are one. No one pities, no one asks for help, no one helps. There is no task, no social work to be done, no compassion, no special wisdom. So here he is trying to get us to move beyond the idea that I am the helper and this is the vulnerable person being helped to a sense of solidarity, a sense of allyship, a sense of oneness of how we relate to the other. That a child who enters into our home is as much our, um, we don't want to use some of this evangelical language of us as saviors or one of the Talmudic passages we translated as rescue right? That we are not here to rescue a child or save them. Our liberation is bound up with them. And so big questions reside in the practice of fostering a child. Am I the child's savior or simply her caregiver? Am I this child's salvation or only their temporary steward? Not seeing myself as the savior of the child may be vital. Rather, in personal terms, these children always remain a part of my soul, whether they remain with me and my family or whether they return. From my own Jewish experience, there's a lot of wisdom around the two concepts of faith and trust, emunah and bitachon. Emunah meaning faith and bitachon meaning trust. It is not a blind faith where we let the child go, nor is it a complete trust in the case plan. Instead, it's a cautious faith, a tentative trust. We never know for sure what's best for a child, but we try our hardest to place infinite trust in the process. We learn to let go. The love stays in our heart, even though the child is no longer in our home or in our professional care. Rather than let go of such love, the task is to channel it toward our other children or a new foster child that arrives. The truth is, friends, that in life, we will always have to learn how to let go, whether it is dropping off a child at college or moving far away from a sibling or sitting at a loved one's deathbed. There are valuable and difficult moments during our lives where we have to let our hearts be open, even when we don't see someone as often as we'd like. It's a struggle to make ourselves this vulnerable, but to love is to be vulnerable, as C.S. Lewis wrote. Loving anything, love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Indeed, we see foster children and we and we let them see us. Should any, any, any one of us be blessed to welcome a foster child into our home, may he or she come to love us and we can't come to love them. As famously as uh, Alfred, um, as, uh, um, Alfred in Lord Tennyson once famously wrote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all." Indeed, when the moments call for us to lay down our spiritual armor, all we can do is open our hearts and keep on serving. So to conclude here, friends, Perhaps one day I will pass that man in the street, giving each other gentle smiles. One gives a stranger. Neither of us will recognize one another. But for that brief moment when our eyes lock, and I know I've seen those eyes before, and then through a process that is not understood by the mundane mind, our souls will connect. Our souls will know that we once laid on the floor singing the alphabet together, that we enjoyed cuddling and exploring the vastness of the backyard, that that we shared tears and laughter together, that we shared happy times with kisses and hugs. This soul, this soul truth will be enough. And I pray every day that this will be enough and that in this passing moment, this stranger and I will be one. We will have lived different lives, but we will have a shared past. May we have forgot, we may have forgotten each other's faces, but never each other's spirits. This love shall always endure. Okay, friends, I want to pause there. I know this is kind of a heavy, hopefully not overly triggering topic, but I would love to hear your thoughts on some of the Torah, some of the um, other social dimensions involved with this 
idea of chesed um, with caring for vulnerable children. That was amazing. <laughs> oh my God. And I put in the chat, Rabbi, that I, I just, I, you shared a lot of this, like I said, a lot of these stories on social media and I couldn't believe how much grief you got. That was just insane. And my favorite, like I said, was the Santa story. I remember. And the one where you went through McDonald's with the two of them. And I just thought that was great. I, I, I loved it. So, Thank you, Sarah. perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for that. Yes. Hi. Somebody raising here. Uh, hi, uh, Aglaya. How are you? How are you? Okay. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm a little emotional, but anyway. Um, just a question. When is um a yatom no longer a yatom because they've grown up? Oh, that's a great question. That is a great question because um, um. I think there's two levels to that question. Um, one level is the emotional mm-hmm. and psychological dimension. The other is um, the uh, the uh, the physical vulnerability dimension. Mm-hmm. And so, um, from the Torah's perspective. Mm-hmm. One is a yatom, even if they are an adult whose elderly parents die. Emotionally and psychologically, if you're 70 and your 100-year-old parent dies, you are now an orphan. Just like um, you're a a widow, if if your partner dies when you're married at 25 or if they die at 85, just like you're you're a refugee if you're seven or if you're 70, so too, you're, you're a yatom if you're 70 or if you're seven from the emotional, psychological dimension, one who loses a parent. In a sense, there is a psychological dimension of being cared for and taken care for, even if you're now the caregiver for a parent. You've lost that person who loved you or, or, or potentially, hopefully, loved you in a way that no one else can, um, that a parent does. And yet on the physical dimension, um, we, we see that um, this category of a child um, is a different category. Now, it's interesting. In America, we call that 18, and that's a problem, right? That's a big problem. Why is it a problem? Oh, yes. Because if you age out of the foster care system, three-quarters of kids who age out of the foster care system end up in the pipeline, the pipeline of threefold, the pipeline of homelessness, of prison, and of child trafficking. Three quarters yep. of children. Why is that? Because if you're 17 and 350 some days old um, and you receive all the benefits of being a foster child um, in the system. But as soon as you're 18 years old, you lose those benefits. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you're no longer are in, in the foster system. And that's why that happens. And so in America, we decided 18. So what is an adult in, in Judaism? Well, I know we kind of naively think a 12-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy. And to be honest, that was a lot more about pubic hair than it was about maturity. It, we had a very physical, biological measurement around maturation, right? Um, now, because, you know, we, we put those kids to work. We stopped their schooling. Today, um, we, we used to have a category called, there was, there was childhood, teenagers, mm-hmm. and then there was adulthood. And then the psychologist about 20 years ago created a category called emerging adulthood. <laughs> emerging adulthood was called, okay, this is not a child, but this is not an adult. And the psychologist defined that as 18 to 26. And that is why Birthright Israel made it 18 to 26. Because they, they said, we're going to operate around the psychologist's idea of emerging adults. Now, interesting enough, in the last decade, they extended that. He said, oh, we used to think 26 somebody became an adult. It's probably into the late 30s, actually, right? And they created these five measurements, which are relatively arbitrary around what it means to be an adult. They said, and and some of these may be offensive. They said, oh, do you kind of pay your own rent or own a home? Yeah. Do, Do you have a committed life partner, right, that you've married or something? Do you have a child, a steady career? They had these things that said, basically, you are independent, and that makes you an adult that you are not dependent. And so um, so that's kind of interesting. But anyways, to go back to your great question, in one sense, somebody is always a yatom. And in another sense, they um, they are 
they demand more of us on a subjective rather than objective measurement around their level of vulnerability. For example, would we say, um, we would say a, 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 um, a woman with $10 million is still a widow if her husband or, or her wife passed, right? Mm-hmm. They lost their partner. They're still a widow. So that means we need to provide for them. But do we need to provide for them money? Probably not if they're, if they're a millionaire, right? So too, a vulnerable child who just inherited a $2 million life insurance policy, we might say money is not what they need, but they have a whole bunch of other needs, right? Socially. And, but, but, um, but then again, a, let's say somebody had special needs and they're 50, they're 50 years old and they were dependent upon their parents for various reasons. They lived with their parents with their special needs. I don't care that they're 50, right? Uh, um, they actually have a whole set of, of needs. And so it, it's really a fascinating question you ask because it's, there's some objective metrics um, that we have some, some subjective metrics. So, but I, I would love to throw it back to you if you have any kind of response or follow-ups to that. Um, oh, for me, like, well, yeah. most of mine at this point in time, most of my students are um, in the 16 to 60 category. But what I'm noticing, so I inherit every parenting <laughs> disaster, but um <laughs> from what I'm thinking is that we're all Yatom, you know, we, every last one of us is in some way or another. It's, you know, oh, I love that you said that because um, that's what it says in Eicha. Um, how do you say Eicha in English? Anybody? Ecclesiastes, Rabbi? Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes. No, 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 I'm sorry. Ecclesiastes is called. Oh, yeah, lamentations. Lamentations, yeah. You're right. Eicha is like, lamentations, and we read Eicha on Tisha B'Av, yeah. the traditional day of mourning, and it says in Eicha, we are all Yatomim, we are all a Yatom, as Aglaia is saying. And I think that's true. It says in Psalms that our parents forsake us, right? Our parents forsake us. And again, it's a spectrum, not a binary. Um, that's, you know, we have all been... Um, yeah, I don't want to use this, the word neglect too loosely because it is a real category. Just like abuse is a real category. I don't want to use you know too loosely, but we are all vulnerable children in um, in many in many different ways. So thank you for sharing that. And as you know, Aglaia, one of the really different difficult things in the, in the classroom when you see atrocious parenting is like when do you step in and when do you not? Yes, because there's few things more sensitive than telling a parent how to parent or you know, <laughs> stepping on toes, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet, when when is a line crossed that we need to kind of intervene there, right? Well, that's why I put in the chat, actually, it's like the judgment of Solomon. You feel like you have to give, you you have to let go because it's going to only harm the child, you know, so. Right. Now, yeah. here's, one of the, here's one of the challenging things mm-hmm. around our foster care system today. Mm-hmm. The data shows, mm-hmm. now this is kind of scary, the data shows that a child will oftentimes perform better longer-term life Mm-hmm. Now, perform is kind of a complicated word, mm-hmm. um, but we'll perform better lo- in longer term, have have healthier indicators um, mm-hmm. if they are in a um, um, in a let's call it a um, a broken home, for lack of a better phrase, mm-hmm. um, a certain degree of neglect or abuse, but remain with biological family. Mm-hmm. Then, if they are in a healthy home that does not have abuse and neglect. There are some studies that indicate that, even though there are some other studies that indicate being in a self, a healthy, stable home is more important. But that makes us pause a little bit because yeah. there used to be a system called orphanages. We got rid of orphanages, right? We yeah. abolished the idea of institutional large group homes. Yeah. And that got replaced with the foster care system. And the foster system was much better because it was a family, a home setting rather than an institutional setting. And the case plan was reunification rather than adoption immediately for most cases. And yet we still see, and disproportionately with families of color and single women of color, the traumas that emerge with those children being taken away from those homes. And so that's a whole other conversation for us to continue back to. But Aglaia reminds us that we are all, we are all vulnerable children. We're going to go to Toby and then over to Eileen. I, I'm really new here, so I'm not aware of all the various things that you've discussed, but I can tell you I am a uh, criminal defense attorney, and I work primarily with death penalty cases. 
And I can tell you, and I've represented a number of young people, uh, very young, and I can tell you without exception that had any of them, had anybody who gave a crap about them, is even dysfunctional crap. Uh, But these are people who had basically no one to raise them. Um, And this is, you know, this is anecdotal evidence. I'm not a scientist and I didn't study this, but I can tell you I've represented over 150 death penalty eligible people, plus a bunch of murderers that weren't death penalty eligible. And every one of them had significant abuse, neglect, um, bullying, I mean, all kinds of things that all, you know, people who aren't orphans deal with too, but they don't have anybody to reflect this with. They don't have anybody to go and say, mom, you know, I had this thing happen today and, or dad or brother or whatever. And um, I wonder uh, every day, what if they'd had one person, just one person that took care of them, that loved them and that knew uh, without question that they were lovable, would that have made a difference in these people? Would they have Toby, not ended up with me? Thank you so much for sharing that, Toby. Um, that's very powerful. And do I do I, I understand correctly that as an attorney, the number one mitigating factor you can show to try to reduce the sentencing is actually the, the difficulty of the childhood. Is that correct? That's that's correct. That's correct. Yeah. And that's the that's the only thing juries want to hear. Um, that will mean the difference between, and these people, I don't want anybody to think that, you know, these people get to go home afterwards. It's the difference difference between a a life sentence, a natural life sentence in Arizona, which means as long as you live uh, in in Arizona, uh, or an execution. We execute people here, even though we haven't done it in a while. I know. Thank you for that. I know we took like an eight to 10 year break. And just a few weeks ago, we did an execution and we've got another execution coming up in a week or two. I don't know if you're involved in either cases or not, Toby. I'm not. I, I, these, these cases take a very long time. I do have one guy in the pipeline right now who is has exhausted all of his um, appeals and um, it was one of my favorite clients. Did he do bad things? Absolutely. Uh, should he remain in prison for the rest of his life? Absolutely. Does he deserve to get pit to have the state kill him? Absolutely not. Toby, thank you for sharing. We're, we're going to circle back to you on this issue. Thank yes. you so much. I, okay, over to Eileen and then Lauren. Um, you said earlier that vulnerable children are on a spectrum, and I'm going to say all children are vulnerable. All children, in order to develop into complete adults, need love, need compassion. And um, I kind of get annoyed when people put children on spectrums. And I say this because I have a grandson who is brilliant, but he has social inadequacies. And my daughter talks about him being on the spectrum. I hate that because it limits what he can become and what he can do. Thank you for sharing, Eileen. Yeah, so we want to maintain an objective category and a subjective category. Like, look at poverty. We talk about absolute poverty and relative poverty, right? Like, there is a certain global objective metrics of what it means to live in poverty. And yet there's also a subjective model that someone living on a certain amount in the U.S., that if they were living in Senegal, um, they would be rich, um, you know, and um, and yet, given their context of where they live here, even though they have access to clean water and maybe health care and maybe even a roof over their head, still experience themselves as living in poverty. And we want to maintain the objective measure while also honoring the subjective measure. And just just as here, the vulnerable child is um, is a real objective category. And yet subjectively, if we don't find our own vulnerability, we will repeat those traumas upon others that we experience. We know that. There's so many books on parenting from the inside out, teaching from the inside out, that if we don't kind of hold our own shadow, so to speak, if we don't hold that and control it, then actually we, we, will, um, we will repeat it's that and perpetuate cyclical. that. It's um, cyclical, yeah. Abusive yeah. children become abusive parents if in fact 
They don't learn other methods. And so you see this for generations. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you so much. Okay, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Hi. Um, I've got two, que two questions. So one question is, it, are there organizations that try and keep Jewish children within a Jewish foster family? And halakhically, does it matter? My other question is, we see every now and then it'll come up in the newspaper about some poor foster child who's been abused to the point of, of being killed or almost dead. Um, and there's a lot of criticism about our child welfare society because they're, they're so severely understaffed and underfunded. It's, is it any better where you are? And, and is there, since you're a foster parent, does a social worker show up often to make sure that everything's okay? Those are my questions. Okay, great, great. Um, I got so immersed into your second one that I'm, um, I, I lost track of the first. Remind okay, me again. So the first, the first is, is there a halachic um, okay, yeah, yeah, gotcha, reason gotcha. to keep Jewish yeah. children within okay. the Jewish foster Thank system? Yeah. And is there an organization to ensure it? Okay, so this is a complicated question because... There's a debate today around whether foster families should be ideally similar to the foster child. Um, if, a, if a black boy goes in the system, should the priority be to place him with a black parent or black parents? If a Jewish child goes into the system, should the priority be that the child goes into, um, into a Jewish family? Now, some people think maintaining those cultural norms or racial norms or religious norms is important for the child's uh, transition. Other people think that, um, that colorblind is a loaded phrase, but that we um, should put the child into the best and first available home. Now, although it may seem like the match is the most sensitive approach, the match approach can also lead to discrimination. Imagine this, there's a white kid in the system and there's a black family ready to foster. And they say, no, we wanna place them with a white kid. Or there's a gay couple, um, there's a gay couple who's ready to foster and they say, no, this kid's from a straight home, let's get him in a straight home, right? So, um, and so, and so on the one hand, it sounds natural for us to say a Jewish kid should go into a Jewish home, a black kid should go in a black home, you know, a straight kid should go into a straight home. We see that, well, on some level, that's least disruptive, perhaps. On another level, there's a discrimination process involved in there, which is problematic. Now, that said, that said, like, a lot of Jewish kids have been lost into the system. Right? Because they get adopted by a Catholic family or an evangelical family and their Jewishness is lost. And so um, um, I do think, so where do I fall out on this? And I would love pushback if people want to push back. I think that we have to find a way to have a non-discriminatory approach while also ideally honoring the unique circumstances that are best for the child. For example, I've got children who they speak Spanish in my home and I don't speak a word of Spanish. You know, I mean, maybe two, but I say it pretty badly, right? And so ideally, like, not that I should be discriminated against, but ideally if there's a parent that's equally ready as me and someone already speaks Spanish, ideally they would go there, right? Um, and so too, if there's a child they know is Jewish, I think ideally they would say, oh, you're equipped to best support a Jewish child. So here's the problem. And that goes to the second point now. The second point is the system is so underfunded that these DCS workers have an over overloaded case plan, an overloaded case plan. They've got these hundreds of families they're trying to manage in these kids' case plans. They can't do it adequately, even though they're trying so hard. It's like, um, what do you call Toby, the type of state-funded attorney who... Um, public defenders, that's what I was. So. It's like a public defender or, you know... It's, you know, so it's one of those things where like you're so overloaded with cases, you can't give any case an adequate attention. And so and so, too, with that, that's why some of those tragic cases emerge, as Lauren said, about abuses in foster homes. 
it makes no sense to me because no one is going to get rich off the very modest stipend they're getting as a foster parent, which which is likely to not fulfill anywhere close the costs of raising a child unless they're completely neglecting every need that child has. Um, so I don't know why anybody would would take in a foster child who didn't want to show love. I mean, there's obviously sick people out there. But I, I already told you the two hardest things for me about being a foster parent. The third hardest, um, perhaps, is that your house or home becomes like a property of the state. You constantly have the agencies in your home, um, inspecting and meeting and doing this service and that service. And so, yes, there is very consistent reviews. And if that child is in any, in preschool or in some kind of schooling, it will emerge if there's any abuse involved because um, of the whole system. And that's where Aglaia as an educator is touching on. The educators and caregivers outside the home need to be a partner. There's, the, there's, there's so many people in the system. There's the biological family. There's the foster family. There's DCS, various state agencies. Then there's the schooling system that needs to also be a partner in thinking about this healing process. And so, um, and so, yes, um, the, the, the system is very involved in, in observing these things. Okay, thank you. There's so much more to say there, but let's go to Eddie and then Matthew. Thank you, Rabbi. Um, I, I'm interested in, in hearing where the bracket of morality is and uh, for adoption and fostering. Uh, and to, as of 2017, there's been 545 uh, migrant children that are lost in the system, meaning that ICE has no idea what, where these kids are. And this is as to date right now, according to my source on NBC News, uh, these children, uh, their parents were deported back to Central and South America while their children are here and they were put in, into the adoption and foster care system. So if I am a foster parent and uh, I know morally that these children have come to me from here. Where is the ethical background to say, you know what, these children don't deserve to be with me. We should figure out a way to, to keep them with their parents. Um, is there morality to that? And I'm, I'm still looking back even further than that, looking at boarding schools and the atrocities that were occurred by Americans adopting uh, black children and indigenous children and um, having their lives lost. I personally know a friend who was adopted into a Mennonite family, and he has lost all his contact to his black family. Um, so I'm wondering what, where the morality is at, and if uh, and, and if any Torah is is backed up to to uh, talk about that. Thank you. So Eddie, I, I'm actually going to throw the question back to you because in in the case of family separation at the border. I'm sure everyone agrees here that is horrific and atrocious um, and that everything has to be done. And the Biden administration committed to doing a lot. And um, and yet there's not so many families reunited yet. So we have to we have to work even harder on that. But let's take the case where after the fact that it does happen, families are separated at the border for one reason or another, either in, um, maliciously, as we saw under the Trump administration or bureaucratic errors. I mean, it's hard to imagine what, how that could even happen. But so by some something other than completely malicious intent. Now they're separated. So Eddie, where do you think that child, where do you think that those children should ideally go until they are reunited? Yeah, I think that there's NGOs, uh, nonprofits uh, that dedicate their lives and their uh, their work to being able to support and, and have the resources to both be culturally prepared and ethically prepared to be reunited with those kids. I think the issue here is what we're seeing is that they're put into government-funded uh, foster care systems and also faith-based uh, foster care systems that are not prepared culturally or ethically to be able to take care of these kids. Um, so they have no idea. And um, according to this article that I was, I just pulled up, what they were saying is that they, they, after the second transition of, of them being put into a different foster care system, tracking stops. And this is where we, we get uh, a lot of problems. So I think that there is uh, definitely nonprofits that are able to do this and able to, to be able to support the, the issue is, is logistics, you know, and, and like you were saying, they're, dr they're drastically underfunded, um, it's, it's just trying to make sure that we, right. we point the roads to the right destination. Awesome. So thank you, Eddie, for raising that. Because once a, once um, a an asylee child ends up in the foster care system, of course, for, we, that's why we need more sensitive foster parents who can have those sensitivities and support them. But as Eddie said, we want to prevent them from getting into that system where a judge can make a certain decision that would not be in the best interest of that child being reunited. Um, and also not in state-funded agencies, but rather with NGOs who are 
are, 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 are most concerned with the human rights of those asylum-seeking families and their reunification. So thank you for that. And Aglaya, thank you for that point around Louisiana, which I'm sure is true for other states as well. This long history um, of Jewish children ending up in Christian families as well. Um, so yeah, a lot more to say about that. But yes, over to you, Matthew. Okay. With the absolute shortage of foster parents and the increasing need I just wonder if we should be revisiting what we'll call the old orphanages as a way of providing at least some sort of temporary, if not longer term, stability. Uh, I look back when my mother was probably six years old. My grandfather had left. Her father had left. My grandmother could not keep her children. And it was traumatic on my mother, but my mother and her younger brother were in an orphanage from Monday, from Sunday night till Friday for six or eight months. You didn't have a foster care. You know, is there, is this, I wouldn't say temporary solution, but is it maybe better? To Go over to this um, young girl, 14 years old with two kids. I'm, she's now had two more since then. She's 18 now. She's got four in the system. And say, listen, we want you to know, like, we're on your team. Like, we're rooting for you. Like, we're, we're not opposed to you. Like, we want, you know, if there's requests you have and how we raise our kids and your kids and the like. And so, nonetheless, they had trouble looking her in the eye. Like, even though we were the helpers to them, we're taking care of your children. We want to be a partner to you. They viewed us as a part of the system that was holding them back from reunification, right? And so... From their perspective, they might prefer the kid be in an orphanage than be with some other family in their other home, being raised with values different than their own or whatever the case is. And um, and Matthew's right. There's 700,000 children who pass through the system every year. 700,000. Just, I mean, an astronomical number. And By, by um, the way, as an aside, yeah. I never knew my mother's story until I was uh, in my... Uh -huh. 50s or 60s when a cousin yeah. mentioned it to me yeah ironically my two younger sisters heard it directly from my mother wow oh, but she wow. didn't share it she did not share it with my brother and i but she shared it with her daughters matthew was was she a survivor uh Holocaust well, in, survivor? no no this was oh. this was in brooklyn in 1920s okay okay interesting uh, and my grandmother just the only she could not take care of her two children yes. and a local Jewish orphanage where you could be there either all the time or, my, or week or through the weekend was a viable alternative to enable her to get a job and eventually support her children. Thank you for sharing that. You know, it's um, it's 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 surprisingly not rare what you've shared. In my own family, something emerged recently where a, a grandparent was actually in an orphanage that wasn't shared with family, was uncovered later. I, th I wonder if this is a generational thing around not talking about these aspects of our child traumas. I'm not to say that it doesn't happen now as well, but this idea of like years of one's life being hidden from one's children and grandchildren. Yes, Aglaia, you're going to share. Uh, historically, I can tell you that there was a huge stigma about adopted children. So a lot of people would not talk about it at all because mm -hmm. of the huge social stigma about being adopted. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Yes, Sarah. And I was going to say, not of course, on a different subject, but slightly related about how, you know, and there's people in, you know, down the street from me who, you know, don't want women to have access to health. Uh, healthcare and, and, you know, safe abortions, like, you know, what? So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that an interesting sense. intersection, which is beyond the scope of today. Right. I'm just, and then these kids end up in the system, like yeah. that poor 14 year old kid who may or may not wanted to have children. I mean, cause that's, you know, wants to have kids at 14, like, and she can't, I mean, you know, if she wanted to have aborted the child and, and then there's Arizona and yeah, and everything else. <laughs> okay, friends, we need to pause here. Um, it's always great to learn with you all about, about this. I want to remind us that while we do many social justice classes, this is not a, a systemic social justice class. This is a, a kindness class. And so after each session, we can challenge ourselves to say, yeah, I'm a vulnerable child within my, um, within my world. 
And how can I do a little bit more to show kindness toward them? Whether they are older, younger, whatever it is, whether we're a foster parent or adoptive parent, whether we're a teacher or a social worker, whether we know somebody who we can support, how can we do a little more? Uh, section eight next week is the act of kindness of supporting brides and grooms. Next week, we're going to look at the chatan v'kala and how can we support potential prospective brides and grooms um, and um, uh, at that moment in, in their lives. Have a wonderful day. Hope to see you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.